What better Mother's Day present could we give mothers than just the sight of teenagers walking with the Lord, right? Well, if you want to open up this morning to our text, it's in Revelation chapter 14. It's page 1224 if you have a pew Bible. Revelation 14, starting right in verse 1. Then I looked before me, and then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths, They are blameless. Let's pray. That's great. I should just sit down right now. (laughs) Father God, I thank you, God, for the laughter and the joy that you give us, and I thank you for the reminder that even the youngest children are, that sometimes we take ourselves too seriously. Father God, I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for the chance to be here today. I thank you for the sun shining, for the the wind blowing, for the trees rustling. Thank you and praise you, God, that you are alive, that you are active in the world, that you are moving to redeem a people for yourself. I thank you for this glimpse we see here of the glory your bride will share with you one day. Father God, I thank you for the, uh, the, the youth and the teenagers you have in this church. I thank you, God, for the promise that even if we are only four or five when we receive Christ, we have the promise of that we receive the Holy Spirit and that we receive a gift through that Spirit, a gift to use to glorify you. And Father God, I just pray for everyone in our church, but I, I pray right now specifically for our teenagers that you would, even at a young age, give them a joy and an encouragement that they can affect eternity through using the gifts you've given them. And Lord God, I just pray that you would urge them on, even at a young age, to use those gifts. God, whether it's through singing or teaching or praying or serving or helping to glorify you and to make disciples for your name's sake. Pray that you'd be with us the rest of this morning. We pray that you'd lead us and guide us by your spirit, that you'd give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know you more, that you would lead and guide us into all truth, and that you'd be pleased with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. But one of the things I think that it is worth pausing to remind ourselves, and yes, I forgot to dismiss the kids as usual. I'm sorry. You know, there's some things in life that you can just come to expect as a given, right? I remembered in the first service, that is a great average in baseball. So, One of the things that's good for us to remember is that the Bible is not primarily a set of disconnected stories with different agendas and different anecdotes going in all kinds of different directions like some kind of great spider web. But that the Bible is primarily a single story with its genesis in the book of Genesis 
that marches through the entire warp and woof of scripture, going through different literary genres, different time periods, written by different authors under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to communicate a single message and a single theme, the conclusion of which we are enjoying now in the book of Revelation. And we see a sense of that theme here in Revelation 14 as we gaze upon the triumphant Lamb of God joined by His bride, the entire heavens erupting in a wedding chorus. And the operative question for us is, do we want to know the words to the song? So this morning we look at four questions as we tease this out. First question is, why is this happening now here in the text, in chapter 14 and not somewhere else? Who is this bride that is there with Jesus Christ? Why do the heavens open up in song? Some of us, especially guys, don't like singing, so we're especially wondering, why are they singing out loud, and why is that a good thing? And then the questions to our own hearts is, do we want to know the words to the song? Why is this happening now? Have you ever felt the joy of being vindicated? You ever felt that sheer joy of being the person that was laughed at, that was made fun of, that everyone else thought was weird or odd, and all of a sudden the way history unfolds itself, you find yourself with a gleeful smile on your face because you have been vindicated and seen as right. Maybe you've had that experience where you were trying to convince someone of something, they didn't believe you, they said you were wrong, they disregarded your opinion, they disregarded your ideas, and then days, weeks, perhaps months later, they come back to you and say, you were right, I was wrong, I'm sorry. Maybe you're one of those people that you couldn't wait for them to come and tell you that, and you decided to go to them and say, I told you so. You couldn't wait for the moment of vindication to come to you, you decided to go to it, right? We've had those experiences. Perhaps, you know, you were the one in your office pool, you were filling out the final four form for March Madness, and everyone else looked at the seeds you were picking to kind of end up at the, in the end, and they were like, are you out of your mind? We're going to be making fun of you, and you were thinking, it's going to work out. And you waited out the laughter and the criticism, and then one moment, you find that you've won, and you've got bragging rights until next year. You were the one who, at the beginning of the season, said, this underdog that everyone underestimates and laughs at, they're going to go to the final dance, they're going to win the big show, and I'm going to have the hat and the t-shirt. And no one else believed you. And you were doing it. You were the only one that looked at the the relationships around you and said, that couple is not going to last. Or you looked at them and said, they're going to get together, I can see it. And no one else believed you. And it came to pass. You were the one who endured the shame, the laughter, the lack of an audience to promote your ideas. Yet you were the one who soaked in the glory when your thoughts proved true and you rejoiced in the vindication of your thoughts, ideas, views, or dreams. Why does this happen? Let's remember, where have we been the last two weeks in chapter 13? We have seen the rise of these two beasts, the false prophet and the antichrist. We have seen the enormous power they have been given to wage war against the world and particularly the people of God, right? We have seen them be given power to to lead the world astray through false teaching, through counterfeit miracles, through the exercise of financial controls on the world. I think it's fair for us to say that chapter 13 ends pretty darkly. 
If the book stopped there, it would be a work of existentialism. Alright? It is not a happy book. It's kind of like the end of The Empire Strikes Back, when you finish the end of the movie, and everything seems dark, and you think, can they even make a third movie? Where is it going to go from here? Or the end of the two towers, when, you know, you're, what is it about the second movie in a trilogy? I don't know. I'm not a writer. But you're at the end of the two towers, and Frodo and Sam, they're walking along, and they've got some hope as they go into the, the darkness of, uh, of Moria, not Moria. I'm losing my, the word. Okay, I'm not a good enough token fan, I guess. So, they're, they're, they're going into the enemy territory. They're, they're thinking all hopeful, even though things seem dark. And then the camera pans back, and you see the inner war between Gollum and Smeagol continue. And all of a sudden, Gollum resolves, I'm going to kill them. I am going to have this spider kill them. It's a dark ending to a movie. And chapter 13, I think it's fair, ends fairly darkly. That those who do not receive the mark of the beast don't have the power or the ability to buy and sell goods. Think about what that would be like. Here you are, you don't have, you know, you're, you're having all of these persecution come upon you, and added to that, you don't have the power to buy and sell goods. But you have to keep providing for yourself and for your family. Heck, I don't know about you guys, I went last Sunday to Hannaford's after church to get some lunch. And you'll remember that Saturday night there was this big thing on the radio and on the news, you know, about this pipe that burst, uh, you know, west of the city and there were different towns like Lexington and Newton where the water was contaminated. But down here in Hingham, in Hannaford's last Sunday, a riot practically was breaking out in the bottled water aisle. All the water empty off the shelves. There's like three or four bottles left. One woman goes to another as the woman grabs a bottle, slaps her on the arm and says, that was mine. Like, really? Now, meanwhile, there's like stacks of Gatorade, vitamin water, and sparkling seltzer next to that. But, I don't know, maybe they don't keep you alive if you need liquid. I don't know. <laughs> a riot is breaking out over a temporary problem. What lengths would people go to to get water and food and sustenance over a longer-lasting problem? It's worth us remembering that the people who choose the mark of the beast will be seen as intelligent, practical, pragmatic, reasonable, the good providers for their family. In many ways, they will be seen to be the ones that made the right choice. And what are Christians going to look like? You're a bunch of idiots. You're not going to eat. You're not going to go to the, buy food at the grocery store. You're not going to be able to you know, cash your paycheck. What are you going to do? Christians will be seen as the laughing stock of the world because they're the ones that are not able to do these basic things that we need to do to live. Some of us, in some small way, have that experience right now, don't we? You're the one in your family who gets called the Bible thumper. You're the one who you walk out of the room and they say, and that's why you don't talk about religion or politics. You're the one who, you know, you walk over to you know, the, the, the coffee break room and they go, oh, here comes the Jesus freak. You're the one that they don't understand why you give to your church instead of buying a boat. You're the one that they just don't understand why you make the decisions you make. And some of us, in a very real sense, experience the laughter, the ignominy of being a follower of Christ. How much more so will it be than in these moments? It's worth asking ourselves, 
and committing right now, do we want to be seen as the practical, pragmatic, rational, realistic person? Because if that's what we're committed to, well, which side are we going to be on when, if, when Revelation 13 fully and finally comes to pass? It is here at the close of chapter 13 when things seem so dire. When the heavens are clothed in dark clouds, when the enemy is waging war against the church and the world, that the light breaks through the clouds like we saw it last night, that the Lamb of God is seen standing on top of Mount Zion with His bride with Him, standing lordly, looking over the earth, in a moment of victory and vindication. In a moment with sound ringing throughout the heavens, it would attract everyone's attention. Everyone that thought that they were in the right. Everyone that thought they had made the right decision. Everyone that cast shame and scorn and foolishness on the bride of Jesus Christ would look and see her vindicated as she stands with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It is a moment of vindication and victory for the Lamb and for His church, which He has purchased with His blood. Yet that moment of vindication can only come after the moment of greatest darkness, as we see it come right here. Would it not be splendid if each and every one of us in this room today was on top of Mount Zion on that day with our Lord? Here stands the triumphant Lamb of God, joined by His bride, the entire heavenly host, serenading them with a wedding chorus. But still, we need to ask, do we want to know the song? You know, the text repeatedly refers to this group of people as the 144,000, and I've probably been confusing matters by continually referring to them as the bride. You'll remember, earlier in the series, the first time the 144,000 comes up, Pastor Jeremy was preaching and he made, a, I think, a very strong case to say that the 144,000, as we see it come up in the book of Revelation, refers to the entire group of Christians throughout the ages, you know, assembled together. That when we, we talk about the 144,000, we're talking about the entire church of God. I'm not going to repeat what he said. If, if you did not hear that or you're still skeptical, I'd invite you to go back and listen to that sermon uh, from the, the sermon archive on the website. And yet also the one thing we see is that the church, the assembled number of Christians throughout the history of time, the scriptures often refer to as the bride of Christ. Leave your finger here, flip forward with me if you will to Revelation 19. We're going to pause for a minute. We're going to look at Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. And as I read this, I want you to notice the similarities between what it says and what between what chapter 14 says. Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him the glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Here, Jesus Christ is referred to as the bridegroom. The assembled number of Christians are referred to as the, uh, the bride. We, we see the same imagery of peals of thunder and, and lightning. 
a song being erupted in, the sound of a great multitude, this description of the, the righteous acts of the faithful, even as in chapter 14, we see in the first five verses, we see these righteous acts on the part of the Christians. And, and we remember that we are looking here at the bride of Christ at her wedding. And so some of you may say, well, wait a minute. All right, if, if it says here the wedding has now come in chapter 19, what do we do with chapter 14 where you're referring to that as the wedding? Just briefly, I would say that I think here we see what we often have seen. You've probably seen these last number of, of months we've been in the text here where visions reinforce visions within Revelation. And we see a lot of the, the, the similar or even the same exact occurrences to reinforce each other. So one way I might offer to make sense of it is conceive of chapter 14 as the rehearsal dinner. Consider chapter 14 as the rehearsal dinner for the wedding and chapter 19 as the final show. Chapter 14 is where they're running through the motions, they're saying the vows, they're practicing the songs, they're going to kiss, but they're not kissing. As my senior pastor did when we were married, he said, and now you may kiss the bride tomorrow. Very odd and embarrassing. Um, and so chapter 14 is, is, is like the rehearsal, the rehearsal dinner. Chapter 19 is the actual ceremony. Notice what we read here about the bride in, four, in chapter 14, verses 4 and 5. Look at their characteristics. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. You'll notice there's two categories in that list. There are the things that the bridegroom has done for the bride, and there are the effects it has had in the life, virtue, and characteristics of the bride themselves. There's what Jesus has done, and there is what that has created and done in the life of the bride. It is Jesus Christ who has redeemed and purchased them. He is the one who has proposed. He is the one who died so a ring could be placed on their finger. He is the one who took their crimson-stained dress and gave them a white dress. And we see how it sparkles and shines as they're called blameless, as we're told that no lie was found in their mouths, as we are told that they followed Christ and that they were pure. I don't think there's ever been a more beautiful bride in the world than we see here. It, it is worth noting the sexual purity under discussion is not, refer, you know, the fact that they kept themselves pure, they did not defile themselves. It's not referring to the act of, you know, the physical act of sex. The, without getting too technical, email me if you're a geek like me and I'll, I'll, I'll respond more. It, the Greek does not allow it to refer to a physical act, the physical act of sex. It clearly is referring to a spiritual reality that we often see present in the scriptures where following Christ and being obedient to Christ is called chastity and purity and virtue and where disobeying, dishonoring, straying, walking away from Christ is called adultery, where it's called adultery, idolatry, prostitution, or as the ESV shockingly shakes us, quote, whoring after other gods. And so amidst the beauty of this picture, the beauty and the purity of this bride, we have a really jarring reminder, don't we? That, I'm all, for, for example, I'm all for breathing and stretching, 
That's great. Breathing and stretching, good. But in that moment when we begin practicing the forms of, of, of yoga, for instance, where we, we meditate and we empty our minds and we let our bodies sink into the earth and where we try to join with the spiritual force, forces of the cosmos, when we do that, when we bow knee to the idols of sex and wealth and ambition and power, when we, when we take some other religions and philosophies and we kind of take a couple pieces here and there and we put them with Christianity here and there, we're, we're not experimenting. We're, we're not being open-minded. We're not being tolerant. We are committing spiritual adultery as the bride of Christ bought with His blood. It is a sobering reminder. Why do the heavens open up in song? Notice there are three separate similes that are used to describe it. This song that comes down from the heavens, it's like the roar of many waters. It is like, the voice is like the sound of harpists playing their harps. In a world centered around the Mediterranean basin, this image of the waves coming in again and again and again would just conjure the image of the the force and the beauty and the power of the ocean as the waves just come in again and again and again striking the shore. Much like the beauty, the strength and the power of the Lord. You ever heard a song, a new song perhaps, that so got in your in your mind that you know, you're standing in the checkout line and you forget the difference between your inside voice and your outside voice? And all of a sudden people start looking at you like, what is with that person? Or you're like you're in the car and like you realize that you don't even think about it. Next, next thing you notice, the cars around you are looking at you and you're kind of doing your dance. And then you're like, oh boy, caught myself. You know, it's a gift of God in moments when, when our imagination gets so captured with something that we just burst forth in song. And that's what we see happening here. There are moments in which something so great happens in our lives that we just, we just have to sing about it. We have to yell about it. We have to shout about it. We, just, we have to physically react because we have been so moved. And we see a testimony of this throughout the, the whole of Scripture as we see many times when God moves, when God works a great salvation, when God delivers His people, when, when people feel the weight of God answering a great prayer, they respond and they write and then they sing a new song. A song that's never been sung a song that's never been said about anyone else, a song that no one's ever kind of put together lyrically, vocally, musically, and they sing it to God. Psalm 40, 1-3 says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock and making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to God. A new song erupts from our mouths when we, when we realize, I can't say any of the old words to describe who God is. They just won't cut it. They just won't do. In this moment, He's revealed the depths of His love and power and faithfulness so much, I just need something new to describe Him. I can't sing a song anyone said about anyone else. I can't sing those same old lyrics. I need something new because he's worked so great yet again. I need something wonderful and beautiful to describe him. And one day we see here this promise that the faithful of God will stand sealed with his name on their foreheads rather than marked 
with the seal of the pretender to the throne. Basking in the glory of the salvation that He has wrought. Hearing this chorus stream down from the heavens and knowing every word that's being said. And I think feeling themselves tingle as they sit in the truthfulness of it. Here we see the triumphant Lamb of God joined with His bride basking in the glory of this wedding chorus. And we have to ask ourselves, do we want to know the song? section contains a remarkably important truth about discipleship that I think we, we often neglect or we often forget. The temptation, I think, for us is to look at a life of following Christ and we tend to focus on the negative and not the positive. We tend to focus on that which we give up, that which we renounce, that which we lose access to, the rights and privileges that we, we, we lay down, the opportunities that we no longer have, we tend to focus on them and not, not focus on that which we gain. And now, it's worth saying that surely there is a significant amount of Scripture that talks about the self-abdignation of the Christian life, that which we give up, that which we lose. I mean, Jesus, I mean, Scriptures Himself say what? Christians are called slaves of righteousness, Right? We're told in the Scriptures that we're to live lives where our life and our prayer is not my will, but your will be done. And yes, that is certainly a significant piece of the Christian life. However, brothers and sisters, I think we need to be reminded that if that is the only way we view Christian discipleship, we're really missing out. If our theology of discipleship is this kind of trudging, grudging along, half-hearted thing where all we see is what we lose and give up, it's not going to be a fruitful life of discipleship at all. If all we're focusing in on is that, yeah, well, I used to love doing that, but uh, I can't do it anymore. Read this verse. Someone had to share this verse in First Thessalonians. I can't do that no more. Or if all we focus on is, yeah, I would really love to do that, but, you know, I can't. I serve on this committee. I'm a deacon. If all we focus on is, 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 yeah, I'd love to buy that. That would be really great. But, you know, we're doing this building campaign. I got some pressure to give. I guess I got to do that. I, I can't buy the new, you know, Nintendo Wii. I don't know. If all we focus on is the negatives, we are so far from missing the mark. What does Jesus himself say? He says, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Whatever gives up his life for the sake of Christ and the gospel will save it. Notice that he has both intention. Yes, there is certainly loss, there is certainly giving up, there is certainly passing over, there is certainly laying down of rights, but there is also gain. There is also gain. The ledger of Christian discipleship has additions and subtractions in it. And we must look at both if we are to live rightly. Yet notice in this text, that the bride as we see her presented is clearly, the, the focus is on that which she gains and not on that which she loses. The focus is on her being the only one that can learn this new song. That she gains this thing that the rest of the world doesn't even have. That they're standing looking and perhaps confused. She gains the song. She gains the joy of following Christ, of walking in the footsteps of Him who created the heavens and the earth by His powerful Word. She is the one that is pure, that is blameless. Such a gain. 
Such a gain. No sense of loss. I shared this illustration this past Sunday at church. I'll share it again. You had these two friends that met a number of years ago. I think it's about 12, 12, 13 years ago. They met in college. They started dating. Pretty early on, they kind of, they felt that, 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 that tingly. They felt that emotion that, you know, okay, I like him. Maybe, you know, does he like me? Okay. She was pretty smart. She realized early on that they needed to have the relationship defining conversation. She figured out that really quick. And she was really smart. She realized, she, she took a lesson from God in Genesis 3. She realized that it is not a good idea to be indirect with men. That to have a good communication with a guy, you really got to pin him down because he's going to try to remove... I mean, just like what do you see in Genesis 3? What does God say? What did you do? Did you eat what I told you not to eat? Did you do it? God just nailed at him right there. And so, so anyway, so my friend, my girlfriend, she was pretty smart. She realized that, okay, she had this guy she liked. She better be pretty, pretty specific. So she brought up the relationship conversation. She brought up the, the physical boundaries conversation. And they did something fairly, fairly unheard of today. They made a commitment there while they're in college, mind you, that they were not even going to kiss until they were married. Wow. Oh, just, not even kiss. And you can imagine what people thought about that as they looked on. Peers, some of whom were believers. Like, are you a fundamentalist or something? Aren't you being a little over the top? Aren't you being a little extreme? Aren't you going a little too far? Aren't you taking things a little too seriously? You really, do you really want to be the only one in our group of friends who, who like doesn't hang out alone and doesn't even kiss? Like, isn't that going to get awkward for you? What if, he's a, what if you get married one day and you find out he's a bad kisser? <laughs> then you're married to him the rest of your life. What do you do then? You're stuck. You're trapped. Think of, think of all the physical intimacy and joy that you're forfeiting right now. This is a bad idea. And you know, if they would have focused on how bad it was and how much they were giving up and how much they were losing, how long do you think their commitment would have lasted? I give it three movies. Three. Done. Yet they had this vision. Not over what they were losing, not over what they were forsaking, not over how hard and awful and terrible it was going to be. They had this vision for the next 50 years of their potential married life and not the the few that they may be dating. Because they knew that only like one in a hundred high school students ends up getting married that dates. They knew that most people that date in college don't end up getting married. So they couldn't even give the whole, oh, well, we're going to get married so it's okay. Because they knew the statistics. Despite how many times they said they loved each other, they probably weren't going to get married. And so they said, we're more concerned about how awesome it would be if one day on the night of our wedding we can kiss each other and we can consummate our marriage and we don't have our ideas about what that should be tarnished by anyone else. If we don't have to spend any time wondering how we measure up compared to the last people that our spouse dated or got physical with, we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about comparing ourselves. We don't have to worry about any, and any other thoughts. We can be completely free and beautiful in the new marriage that God has given us. And we can have a much better life for 50 or 60 years. They were more focused on the joy and the wonder of that than they were focused on the immediate goal. And here they are, now married for about 11 years with three kids and having a powerful ministry up in New Hampshire find myself wondering if their initial commitment increased the chances that they wouldn't end up getting married anyway and that it would work. They focused, you see, on that which they were going to gain, not on that which they were going to lose. Now, C.S. Lewis is, is helpful at this point. 
I'm going to, you know, Jeremy often says, I don't know if it's the German in me, that I like living on the third rail. You know, the third rail of the subway where, you know, you're likely to get electrocuted and killed. I tend to think of C.S. Lewis like I think of the movie The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Anyone? Can you think of the spaghetti western, you know? The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. You got each of the three guys. Because some of what C.S. Lewis said is just weird. I put it in the ugly cat. It's just weird. Maybe I just don't have the brain power. Don't get it. Some of it is just wrong. I think it's fair to say there are some things that C.S. Lewis says that are completely, patently unbiblical. And yet, there is this other strong, large category of things that C.S. Lewis says that he seems to say more accurately, poetically, and forcefully than anyone else has ever said. And you find yourself just staring at the page going, wow, I can't believe that. He, he, he hits a home run in that latter category in his essay, The Weight of Glory, where he writes the following. He says, the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our cross that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but far too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go into the alley of a slum making mud pies because he doesn't understand what the offer is of a vacation on an ocean ship. We are far too easily pleased. Without seeming too mercenary, I think it's worth asking ourselves, is our idea of the Christian life about allegiance to Christ. When we think of that, do we focus more on that which we lose, on that which we give up, on that which we forsake, on that which we're being denied? Or do we focus on that which we gain, that which we can treasure, that which we can enjoy? Feel the weight of the promise of reward and the implied judgment in this text. The 144,000 will hear the song. They will know the words of the song that celebrates and culminates God's redemptive work through entire history. And yet, they are the only ones that will hear it. Everyone else will stand there hearing this cacophony coming down out of the heavens, perhaps angry, perhaps indignant, perhaps shamed, perhaps confused. They will not know the words to the song and I guarantee you they will be so much the worse for it. God's truth will be vindicated. His bride will be rewarded. And anything that any of us ever give up in the Christian life will seem so small and insignificantly paltry on that day when we are revealed in glory with Him. Jesus tells us what does He say? He says, that he scorned the shame of the cross. For what? For the joy set before him. He wasn't focusing on the pain. He was focusing on the joy on the other side of the pain. And it is that which propelled him through. Should it not be so with us, brothers and sisters? Stand in wonder this morning as we look upon this world filled with economic uncertainty, 
political turmoil, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, injustice, fear, oppression, persecution. This world which, when we watch the news, when we read the papers, some of us when we feel it with our own lives and we go down at night, seems so dreadfully dark and scary. Be encouraged this morning with this picture of the light shining down of Mount Zion, of the Lord and His bride. A glory that has this already but not yet feel to it. It has already been decided. And it is soon to be enjoyed. This, this rehearsal dinner on the way to the wedding, a feel of, of this picture that we see, that we too have the opportunity to be a part of if we would join ourselves with Christ. The triumphant Lamb of God joined by His bride, the entire heavenly host serenading the world from the heavens with the wedding chorus. Do you want to know the song? Do you want to just hear blabbery blubber that day? Or do you want to just feel the truth of every word? Fill up your soul as you're reminded of the great redemptive work of God in Christ. If you haven't, if you haven't done that yet, I'd invite you to talk to me or one of the prayer team later on at the end of the service. We'd love to pray with you. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Will we delight in that song? Let's pray. Father God, I thank You and praise You for this picture that You give us of the glory to be revealed in its proper time. May this picture give Your bride faith, endurance, vision, and strength this day and in the days to come. May this picture motivate those who are not yet a part of Your bride, motivated to repent and to trust in You that they would be grafted in, be given a white, pure, pure wedding gown. We ask this for the glory of Your name. Amen. Would you please rise?
make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look his countenance upon you in favor and give you peace. Amen.